You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So the same When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. And the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. With these words taken from the book of Revelation begins Ingmar Bergman's notable 1957 film, The Seventh Seal, which is the subject for this episode 170 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, Todd Pedler, an associate professor of physics at Luther College in Decorah, Iowa. Joining me today for this program is Assistant Professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. How are you today, Professor Grubbs? I'm quite well. How are you, Todd? I'm hanging in there. I got uh, three more days before fall break, and and that's uh, a needed respite, shall we say. <laughs> are you are you dying yet? Uh, or are you doing I, all right? I, I'm 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 limping along. I got fall break next week too, and that's awesome. Yeah, it's always good. Also with us today is Associate Professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia, Nathan Gilmore. How's life in the Peach State? Uh, we've also got fall break coming up, and I'm going to be using it to uh, grade two sets of freshman papers. <laughs> <laughs> so exciting. My, yes. my, students, my students always ask me, what, what are you doing for break? And I, at that point, I, I usually just give them the blank stare. Um, <laughs> yeah. Break? What? So, what? Yeah. yeah, there is such a thing. Oh, my goodness. People well, take those. <laughs> yeah, right. No, exactly. Um, I, actually, I, I do watch some football. You, uh, that's about the only thing I ever do on break that I wouldn't normally uh, take in. But, um, yeah, yeah. Fall break is interesting because it's not only paper season, but it's, uh, you know, branches and leaf season. So at least up here. Mm -hmm. So, all right. Well, uh, let's uh, let's get things going here. Uh, Listeners, it's my privilege today to host this show with these two gentlemen. And I've asked them to discuss with me The Seventh Seal, which is one of my favorite films, Uh, not for its action or even for the film artistry, although there is much much to recommend there. Uh, Rather, it's one of my favorite films simply for the fact that every time I watch it, I find myself revisiting afresh critical questions of life and death and God and the struggle of daily existence. It's a film that uh, is, in in my opinion, is a masterful demonstration of the art of inviting viewers to the sphere of the existence of actors, to feel their feelings, think their thoughts, struggle with their struggles, and so forth. And when one can find a piece of creative work whether it's literature or film or other visual arts that does this, uh, one has, in my estimation, found a winner and a, a lasting product. So we'll begin a good amount of we'll – we'll be spending a lot of time talking about the film and its maker and so forth. So rather than give too much of an introduction uh, concerning the film, I thought it was best if we just dive right in. So uh, this question for you, David. Um, 
I suspect I'm putting one on the tee and giving you a big bat with which to <laughs> punch this one out of the park. Um, the seventh seal is set in the 14th century. Uh, it features a knight returning to Sweden after 10 years in the uh, in the Holy Land to a Sweden that's ravaged by the Black Plague. What kind of questions were in the air at that point in history? Um, what were philosophers and other writers talking about? And how was the church wrapped up in uh, the conflict between nations and peoples? Mm. The and, and you've summarized it in the question, basically. Um, the first thing you see in the film is a, a block of text that says, it is the middle of the 14th century. Antonius Block and his squire, after long years as crusaders in the Holy Land, have returned to their native Sweden, a land ravaged by the Black Plague. So that's that's the setting of stage, as you quoted it. There's a couple of difficulties Mm-hmm. In terms of the middle of the for, the 14th century is the 1300s, so mid 1300s. Mm-hmm. There's the outbreak of the Black Death in Europe, in Sweden. It, it reaches as well. So yeah, there's there's definitely Black Death here. Uh, the difficulty though is that the Crusades in the Holy Land essentially ended uh, with the fall of Acre in the 1290s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> Um, he took unless, a long way back to Sweden. Yes. And, <laughs> so this is basically the Crusader version of Odysseus, <laughs> who, based on uh, Max von Sydow's age at the filming, must have been, I don't know, eight or nine, maybe, <laughs> when he got married and left home for the... for the Maybe it was, he left for the Children's Crusade. I don't know. Aha! Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Mystery solved. So th- there's actually a couple uh, a couple different details that are in this film that don't quite jive with the um, the time frame that's set at the beginning. Uh, the Black Death is absolutely in mid 14th century Sweden. Mm-hmm. That that's that's real. Uh, cru- major crusades in the Holy Land are pretty much over at this point. There's a few more crusades in I believe. Maybe like a couple more in North Africa, but for the rest of the time, anything called a crusade against uh, Muslims is going to be aimed at the Ottoman Turks, mm-hmm. and they're they're not going to be they're not in Jerusalem and Tripoli and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Um, major witch hunts. There's uh, the the recurring theme of uh, a young woman accused of dallying with the devil. Major witch hunts don't really start until the 15th century. Uh, uh, one detail that is pretty accurate, though, is the flagellants. Uh, people mm-hmm. about halfway through the film wander through whipping themselves and uh, in other ways causing themselves suffering in a kind of appeal to placate God. Uh, that was active during the time of the Black Death, so that's, that's something that's right on the money though it was suppressed in the 15th century. So if you get the idea that the uh, flagrants represent um, good medieval Catholicism, um, there's a way in which they were seen as not representing that to the point Mm -hmm. where they were suppressed. And actually in the 1400s, hundreds of them sometimes at a time would be burned. So they, they... not just <laughs> it's not necessarily witch hunts um the you know even even the flagellants who who claim to be orthodox christians intervening on behalf of other christians were regarded actually as dangerously aberrant and they were, they were suppressed as well 
Uh, even the art within the church, uh, there's a painter. Uh, at one point, the knight visits a church, and there's a painter painting the dance of death. Uh, you know, death pictured as this uh, grim reaper with various people from society. Uh, the dance macabre is 15th century, uh, not not 14th. So there's various details. So this is a kind of gestalt Middle Ages, <laughs> mm. <laughs> right? Um, I, I don't think we're meant to probe too deeply into what's happening in the mid-1300s so much as um, look, look more broadly at the high Middle Ages so we can bring in themes of the Crusades, even though that's a little bit before. We can bring in a kind of obsession in art with death, though that's actually about a century later, mm. <laughs> right? Mm. Uh, we can. Uh, Bergman's asking us to put these things together. Right. Now, mm-hmm. in terms of the actual 14th century, we have the Hundred Years' War beginning in the 1330s. Edward III picking a fight with France. Uh, we have peasant revolts throughout the 1300s um, in Flanders and France, and then towards the end of it in England. In literary news, uh, Chaucer's born in the 1340s, Dante's da- Dante dies around 1320, Boccaccio's rocking the house with his Decameron during the <laughs> plague time, William Langland is is uh, alive and and Plowing away. Yeah, plowing away towards <laughs> the end of this period. Sweden's interesting because Sweden is, for the most part, not feudal because slavery and serfdom were abolished in the 1330s. Sweden and Norway are technically under the same king. Um, so Sweden's a little bit different from the rest of Europe at this point. In terms of conflict between nations and people groups, the memories of the, of the Crusades are still there. There's still a kind of resentment towards the growing um, Muslim power in the, the Levant, um, the Turkish incursions into Eastern Europe, uh, the, the domination of... North Africa by Muslims that that rankles all right there's also going to be uh, in the next century crusades against ver- against remaining uh, pagan peoples in Eastern Europe so there's still uh, there's still a kind of sense that the, ch- the church is armed up and ready to, to settle up against enemies of the faith mm-hmm. Thomas Aquinas was working in the last century, so his ideas are, are out there along mm-hmm. with his, his integration of Aristotle with Christian theology. So this is a, you know, we're, we're, de- we're dealing with a period in which a lot of the, you know, all the chessboard, so to speak, has been set with all the, with the players that we would recognize. And because, uh, because of the, the elements that, that Bergman chooses to put into the film, he's very clearly wanting us to see a kind of co- composite Middle Ages, not just Sweden in 1350. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, cool. Any anything else we want to add to that? About the only thing I'd add is that it is tempting when you look at this film to see uh, Squire Block and say, okay, you know, Bergman is you know just being sloppily anachronistic here and inserting a 20th century existentialist atheist oh, into God. this medieval tale. <laughs> yeah. That said, there are texts from the 14th century extant, uh, the most notable one being the Gesta Romanorum, mm-hmm. in which you actually have a, a literary dialogue between four philosophers who are trying to answer the question, you know, why is it that 
goodness has turned to evil, righteousness to wickedness, uh, life into death, so on and so forth, you know, in, in the wake of the Black Plague. Mm-hmm. And actually in that text, one of the four philosophers says the only way to explain it is Deus est mortuus. Uh, you know, for those of you who prefer uh, newsboys movies, God is dead. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, the the, hmm. the philosophical community anyway, certainly not Europe more broadly, but hmm. there are writers there in the 14th century who are starting to toy with the idea that, okay, if it is God who holds things together, if things fall apart this wildly, it's entirely possible that God is dead. Hmm. So... That, that that that's one of those things. Now, I, I I was thinking the whole time through here. Why in the world did we not mention this movie when we were doing our Monty Python and the Holy Grail episode? Um, <laughs> well, I didn't because I'd never seen it. Yeah, and I had, yeah. but it was twenty years ago. And so, I mean, the the quasi Swedish opening credits, yeah. the weirdly anachronistic, you know date plate at the beginning of Monty right, Python, yep. <laughs> the uh, you know. The witch trial, the flagellants, the... Yep, yep. I mean, <laughs> oh, we man. Have, we don't have Block repeatedly running up from the sea, right? True enough. And no but, rabbits. But, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so, I mean, I, I, I had forgotten, you know, in the space of what would it have been, 19 years before our Monty Python episode, just how much that movie owes to this one. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, good. Um, I I think uh, it's interesting to ask about who's making this film, right? So I mean, mm-hmm. I, and I and I wonder now now that you point us to actual extant philosophers who are say, you know asking these questions, it's interesting to know for me anyway whether Bergman actually knew about this or whether he's just doing the the mid 50s thing yeah if, if uh, he didn't he stumbled into it and yeah he stumbled well <laughs> that's right that's right so uh so Nathan um the film makes its debut in 1957 uh, shot in 1956 uh, it's a screenplay that Bergman wrote uh mm-hmm. and is directed by him is there anything we can learn about this film by looking at the filmmaker and the way he uh did his thing or in particular about the time in his career, or maybe culturally the time uh, at which this film comes out? Certainly. First of all, uh, Bergman's film career begins, according to IMDb, in the 1940s, but he really doesn't start to win uh, Cannes Film Festival Awards, Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences Awards, things like that, until the late 50s, early 60s. He keeps winning on into the 80s. But this is as far as his public career as a widely recognized filmmaker, an early piece. Uh, so, you know, you're not talking about a student film by any means, but you're talking about someone who is breaking into the scene. Mm-hmm. Since my, you know, my, uh, my film lore is limited, that's about where I'll stop there. Now, as far as the cultural moment in 1957, as we talked about before, uh, this is the early post-war period uh so people are living in the shadow of auschwitz uh people are living in the fallout of the atomic bomb and so these questions that arose in the period of the black death really are relevant uh in a way that they hadn't been for you know quite some time before this uh now obviously you know there are intellectuals who are dealing with these sorts of things after world war one 
but after World War II, really, the work that began there intellectually of starting to dismantle and to examine the parts of the structures that give us our identities, that give us our sense of the universe, that give us our sense of order, uh, these are the sorts of things that, you know, as in the 14th century, the 20th century is a time when you've really got to ask these questions if you're going to be an honest thinking person. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, it, it's an early piece, and I mean, I'll, I'll admit it's the only Bergman film I've seen, so I can't, I can't really compare it to other things he's done. Mm -hmm. uh, but I will say that it's, it's very, very fitting for 1956. Mm -hmm. Grubbs, do you, can you supplement this, or do we really need Anderson for this? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Again, I don't know a lot about uh, Ingmar Bergman, but as I began watching this film, I immediately started thinking about another film that came out in 1957 on basically the other side of the world, which was Kurosawa's Throne of Blood. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Also bleak. Uh, also in its own way, in its own culture, medieval. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily dealing with the same themes, but the uh, the aesthetic, the aesthetics reminded me uh, of each other. I kept, I kept thinking about Throne of Blood, and I know that because they are being filmed simultaneously, <laughs> mm -hmm. neither could have possibly seen the other, mm -hmm. but... I, I think that does play into your observations, Nathan, about there being something alive in the culture at that time that was leading people to think along these tracks mm -hmm. so that uh, I wouldn't necessarily see this as causation, but maybe, you know, one of those <laughs> convergent artistic evolution kind of mm -hmm. things, right? Mm -hmm. That, you know, given the same kind of stimuli, two different artistic minds ends up end up in, in interestingly, artistically similar places, maybe. Yeah. Right, right. And it's worth, even if it's just a brief nod, you know, to note the strong distinction between Northern European and Japanese films in 1957 on one hand and what you think of as sort of a very optimistic age in North America during the same period. Mm. Right. And it's because both of these people had actually seen the devastation of World War II in a way that North America hadn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it, you know, I I was also brought to to consider Kurosawa, but I don't know I don't know Throne of Blood. The only I I, I know Seven Samurai and I know, uh, mm -hmm. um, whew, Rashomon, right? Well, yeah. Rashomon's nineteen fifty, mm -hmm. and so when I when I saw this, that is the first place I went because the filmmaking is very similar. I mean, mm -hmm. very spare. Very, you know, uh, small cast, uh, you know, uh, both black and white. I mean, you know, 1957 is it's, – it's the heyday for color. I mean, color is in and color is everywhere. Um, so, you know, he's, he's, he's working in a medium where light and dark are, are so um, – the con you know, well, the, naturally, the contrast is so much greater in, mm -hmm. on, in, in that medium. Um, but the shot making is – it, it it's the same stuff. I mean, so I I I I sh I'd be very surprised if there wasn't a strong link between Kurosawa's artistry and what Bergman is doing as he's launching into this long series of of art house type films. Yeah. 
Um, and don't and, know enough about movie making history to be able to diagnose that, though. Yeah, well, I, and I don't either. I've seen a lot, but I haven't done the. You know, I haven't seen much of the scholarship. But um, but but some of the some of the similarities are 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 striking to me. Um, and I kind of wish I had asked you guys to do Rashomon because that's another. You know, that's a film <laughs> which which has. Uh, well, we teach it. We teach it in our first year oh. course, and um, uh, you know, it draws from medieval texts. Uh, it's try. It's well, or texts that that are throwback to medieval era. Um, 1200s in that case, um, but again, it's it's a filmmaker, and he's directly responding to um, both the both the aftermath of World War II and the precursors to World War II with the Japanese and um, and incursions into Manchuria in you know in the late 30s. Um, and I probably shouldn't make too many comments because this is a, this is a Bergman discussion. This is not a Kurosawa discussion. Mm-hmm. But uh, <laughs> but 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 it's interesting. It's interesting to see the same uh, the, the the sort of same reflections as you say from both East and West. Um, whereas in the U.S., Marilyn Monroe is making goofball movies with you know you name it actor right. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little bit different. A little bit different culturally. Um, a little bit. Just a little bit, yeah. Uh, this film was I, – I, I ran across the numbers. Like 150000 is what it cost, um, <laughs> which, I, you know, I, it's, it's stated that that's a low budget for back then. I, you know, it's, it still seems like a lot for the 50s, but maybe, maybe I'm completely off base. Um, but, uh, yeah, so um, I think uh, I, got a, you know, I got, a, got a film uh, – a non-film question. Um, so, David. Yes. Uh, we get at the beginning of the end. We get Revelation eight one and six, uh, mm-hmm. which I quoted at the outset. Um, and I'll read again. And when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. And the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. That arrangement with that at the, you know, at the at the boundaries of this film. How does that help us understand some of what Bergman is doing in this film? There's at least three elements that I see. At least three. Probably mm-hmm. more. At least three elements that I see in this um, sort of scriptural epigraph, so to speak, for the film. First is the general idea of apocalypse. That something is being revealed, and what is revealed is the end. And the con- there's a continued theme through the film of is the world ending? Characters believe characters believing that the world is ending. There's a scene in which uh, the knight and the squire and some other characters drop in at a tavern, and you see shots around this table of different people talking about portents they'd seen of you know seen in the sky or. Uh, weird monstrous births or things of that nature. And then, of course, the Black Death itself. So this idea that the end is near, judgments are being poured out from heaven, this is not just us about to die, but the world's about to end, is uh, the mood of a good bit of the story. And that attaches also to the Black Death generally. um, Because death is coming... And this idea of of a judgment day, a day in which you must eat your in, meet your end, and 
at least some of the characters have have seemed to have internalized this idea of that they must give an account. That mm-hmm. seems to be the the idea of a personal apocalypse, a personal eschaton, not just a worldwide eschaton. That's also in here. Mm-hmm. The other element in this verse that's uh, very important, because he could have pulled many bits from the book of Revelation in order to suggest general apocalypse, the end is here. But he selects this one because there's silence in heaven. Mm-hmm. All right. And this is not subtle. <laughs> the characters talk about it overtly, but right. the silence of God is a problem in this is the problem of the, of this film. The night's problem in particular mm-hmm. is that it's God. It, it seems to be that God should have spoken. God should have said something. God should have given a sign. God should have showed up. Um, but God is not. There's been uh, a horrible mistake of the war the squire uh the squire says that uh, uh only only an idealist could have made sense of the crusades and uh, mm. the gentleman he's talking to laughs at this point <laughs> you're right <laughs> um the, the the disastrous crusades um black death turning all of turning everyone's ambitions and dreams into nothing as they're just dropping like flies and something, I think it's something north of a quarter of the population dying off, mm-hmm. um, depending on where you're at. Mm-hmm. And yet, in this, in the night's estimation, God has God has said nothing. God has not done nothing. There is no voice of comfort. There is no voice of justice. There's just silence. And what in the text of, the, of John's Apocalypse is a silence of expectation, mm-hmm. right? The verse ends that the angels with trumpets are preparing themselves to make a sound. Mm-hmm. Something, something's about to speak, but they're in that moment of silence. And it seems as if the night's fear is that the silence is going to last forever mm. because there's actually no one up there to make noise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What, what can we add to this? About the only other angle that I would add to that, David, is that the trumpets preparing themselves to sound in Revelation is just before destruction rains down on the oppressors of the people of the Lamb. Mm. And I, I've got to think that there's at least an overtone of the fact that in 1956 you've got a nuclear-armed United States and a nuclear-armed Soviet Union by that point. Mm-hmm. And, you know every moment of everyone's existence is the moment before the trumpets might sound. Hmm. Ah, the sirens. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Hadn't thought about it that way. But yeah, that that makes up that that makes great sense. Wow. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that either. And by um, the way, we still live in that moment. We've just forgotten about it because, you know, we've got <laughs> YouTube. <laughs> yeah. No, that, that's, yeah, that's right. That's right. Um it's interesting. I, I'm every time I watch this film, I'm reminded of other things, mm-hmm. and one of them was the summer I I, I read uh, Shisaku Endo's Silence. Yeah, uh, which mm. is a yeah. another one of these topics that I think I probably threw out there to you guys at some point a long time ago because I think that that book 
Oh wow! I mean, <laughs> you know that that's dealing with some you know some a, a similar issue, a similar mm-hmm. issue, right? There's the there there's the uh, repeated repeated questioning: Why is God doing nothing? Why, under the face of this persecution in Japan, um, is is this happening? Mm-hmm. And uh, the weight of it is pretty, you know, it, it, it's pretty ponderous. Um, yeah. Well, um, so I want to let's let's go to the first scene. First scene's famous. Um, mm-hmm. Nathan, uh, what's up with death? Why chess? <laughs> uh, what's the nature of the deal that the knight strikes with death? And if you can bring in the line, it was the salmon moose, you get extra credit. <laughs> well, actually, I, I, that's not the first uh, reference that occurred to me. Uh, of course, you know, it was the salmon moose is the end of uh, Monty Python and the Meaning of Life, in which, you know, <laughs> death appears and takes people away because they've been food poisoned at a restaurant. And it's been so many years since I've seen it. I mean, I remember it was funny, and I yep. remember I felt bad for laughing, but that's about right. it. All, all that tells me is it was a Monty Python production. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that that's that that's that yeah that's that's their mode you laugh <laughs> <it's so bad. laughs> um yeah the one that actually occurred to me more readily uh and you know it was actually the I, I, I saw the send up well before I saw the original was uh Bill and Ted's bogus journey the far inferior sequel to Bill and Ted's excellent adventure all right in which they uh challenge death uh, in sequence, two games of Battleship and Twister, and I believe Foosball, or what was it? I remember the Battleship. I remember the Twister. That's all I remember. Yeah, yeah. So, in this movie, though, <laughs> The Seventh Seal, uh, once again, not huge on subtlety. Uh, you know, uh, Block, who is the knight, not the squire. John's is the squire. I know I said it wrong earlier. I apologize. Uh, Block is on the beach. And a figure in a robe approaches, and he says, "Who are you?" And he says, "I am Death." So I, you don't really have to guess at the identity of this figure. I'd have uh, to see ID. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're just a white, white-faced guy in a in a dark robe. Come on. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> Death, you know, and and again, what Todd was referring to earlier, the shot making is phenomenal because Death's black robe envelops the whole shot. And then the perspective shifts so that you are behind death looking onto John's. And no, son of a gun, I switched him again. Looking onto Block. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be doing this the whole episode. Say. But, uh, and, you know, Block tells him, wait a moment. And, you know, death says, everyone says that, but I don't wait for anyone. And he says, but what you do is you play chess with people. And so, you know, it, it, it's this odd little moment, you know, obviously uh, decades before Charlie Daniels, um, where <laughs> there is a challenge to death at a very human activity, something that is very temporal, uh, a game in which one person moves and the other one responds, and so on and so forth. Once again, the existentialism couldn't be thicker here, uh, because the knight is inviting death into by definition, human territory to challenge him to this game. Now, mm-hmm. chess is also handy because, you know, a lot of the named pieces in chess have allegorical significance, kings and mm-hmm. queens and bishops and knights. Um, and the the character of the deal, uh, because that was part of a question, is that as long as the chess game goes on, 
death will not take block, and if block beats death at chess, then he goes free. Now, it's never clarified because there's never any, any real need to. Does that mean that he will become some sort of immortal being? Does yes. it mean that he'll simply last <laughs> ten more years? Uh, doesn't matter because uh, are, are there spoiler alerts for sixty-year-old movies? <laughs> yeah, I forgot to give the the caveat, but yeah, um, but yeah, you've been well, <laughs> Yeah, I've, I, I think I've uh, filibustered long enough at this point. Hit pause if you ain't watched it. Uh, <laughs> but he loses the game of chess, and death does what? in fact take him. Um, but it's it's interesting because death has to cheat and become basically something beyond human in order to beat the knight at the very human game. Death has to take on the form of a priest in confession, uh, you know, breaking the basic rules of non-contradiction that govern human beings. You can't be in one place and also be in another place and not be in both places at the same time and so on and so forth. Uh, Death does that, cheats, and therefore he defeats him. So... David, what else is going on with this uh, chess business? Well, one of the one of the you already brought this up with the uh, the idea of, of characters in chess that are regularly um, or that, that that are readily turned into allegories, mm-hmm. and the the danse macabre, um, which is featured in art uh, on the church wall where the confession takes place. And in that iconic last shot of uh, the knight and uh, the, the rest of the com- of his companions from the castle being led on a dance by death, uh, mm-hmm. that was a that was a, a common motif. And in this line of people dancing off to their deaths, there would be people from all walks of life. Ah, okay. So, in some ways, the named pieces and the the diversity, you know, pawns and kings and queens and bishops and knights, all on a all on a chessboard is kind of reflected by that same uh, cross cut of society that the dance of death in art um, also represented. Hmm. I also think it's uh, it's just uh, funny death's reaction when Block says. Uh, but you play chess with people, and Death says, "Who told you that?" <laughs> <laughs> like, like he got, like he got caught. And, and Block's answer is, uh, "I've I've seen pictures of that." Right? And they sing songs of it. Yeah, that's yes. right. Right. Yes. Right. So you know, if if you you know if you if you do look, uh, you know, you will find medieval art that depicts people playing chess with death. Right. Mm-hmm. So you know that. That's that's there. That's a real yeah. thing. Um, I haven't traced down the dates as to whether or not someone in 1350 could have actually seen those. Mm. But it, but again, <laughs> we are in we are in Bergman's Gestalt Middle Ages. It doesn't right. matter. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> right. So no, I, yeah, I, I I absolutely love that opening scene. I mean, one one of the things that uh, the GL didn't mention was this. Uh, you, you know, you're opening to the sound of the waves beating against the rock. Mm-hmm. And you see both the squire and the knight. You see the knight praying and the squire's lolling about on the rocks. But when death appears, the sound suddenly cuts. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing. 
and it's just you know the the very blank stare of of death that that block then encounters amid silence so you get the impression that, of course the 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 all that matters is he's face to face with death there mm-hmm. and he can't sense anything else um and uh yeah so it it is it is powerful i you know it, and again it doesn't cost anything to make that scene it's really pretty 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 simple but um uh you know what he does with sound there i think is really really cool um david another we've already sort of touched on this a bit um the scene in the film with with the knight coming to what he thinks is the confessional but the individual on the other side is death that he doesn't know that right away mm-hmm. um take us through that scene and 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 comment as, uh, if you will uh, about uh, this place the place of this scene in the film sure the scene we've already been introduced to the character of death so when the knight and his squire show up at this uh, little church our first the first thing we see in the church is an artist painting on the wall painting scary things uh, there's a dance of death there's depictions of people suffering from plague so it's um, it's a scene of horrors and the squire and the painter end up in a conversation about why are you trying to scare people what good's that gonna do Meanwhile, the knight happens to notice through a uh, a barred window in inside the church that there is a a robed hooded figure um, on the on the other side of the window, and so this is a you know it's presented as a confessional, and so he sees he sees his opportunity to speak to uh, a representative of the faith, so to speak. Um, not so to speak, literally, a representative <laughs> of faith, an actual <laughs> clergyman. It's not metaphor. Um, that's not Father Brown. That's not Father Brown. No, it's it's, <laughs> it's 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 death back there, right? So so next time you see a robed hooded figures, don't immediately think I could confess <laughs> to him, or probably it's a Jedi. You don't know. You should be careful. The dialogue between them uh, is interesting. I, I in in some ways I think it's 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 the heart of the film because the night the night walks up and says I want to confess as best I can and this, these are these are the lines I want to confess as best I can but my heart is a void and that void is a mirror in which I see my own face and feel horror and loathing because my indifference to men has shut me out. Which is a really interesting thing to say because he seems to be the person who's not indifferent to others in the film. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think in mm-hmm. some ways he misjudges himself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the priest, the pseudo-priest behind the window says, and yet you don't want to die. But I do want to die, he responds. And of course, death knows, well, why are you playing chess with me? Um <laughs> But it's because he wants knowledge. And the knowledge that he wants, he wants knowledge of God. Um, God is hiding from the knight's perspective. God is hiding behind uh, religious language, between stories of miracles that he's never seen. God never comes and speaks and touches him. He wants to touch God's hand. And yet... 
in spite of God's silence and God's absence, the knight cannot kill the idea of God and the longing for God that he feels inside. Mm-hmm. And it actually creates misery. Um, the longing for a God who, in, in the face of the possibility of the silence of God, is uh, an insurmountable weight. The priest, mm-hmm. pseudo-priest, asks, well, maybe no one's there. You know, the knight says, uh, I, I feel like I'm sitting in the darkness and there seems to be no one else there. Maybe there is no one there. And the knight, res- and the knight answers, then life is a senseless terror. So, mm-hmm. yeah, this, this, is, this is the burden he, the burden he carries, is the burden of God's silence, the burden of God's absence in the face of a desperate longing for a God to be there because mm-hmm. if a God is there, then life makes sense and he can die with some kind of, with some kind of peace without that life is a mockery. Death is a mockery and the, the senseless terror of a world with, of a life without God and a death without God is, is something that the night, the night can't handle. So in the face of this, he's playing chess with death. He's attempting to delay death so that he can perform some kind of significant action. Having been unable to find an answer to his question, he wants to, having been unable to find meaning, he's going to make some. Mm. He can't see a sign, so he's going to be a sign. He wants to do some kind of significant action that will be the meaning in some sense that he can't find. And yes, you know, uh, yes, we're, we're very existentialist up in here. Hmm. <laughs> so oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Nathan. <laughs> well, and of course, I mean, the other side of that coin is that, you know, while block confesses his sense of, of meaningless to death, uh, who think he thinks is a priest, uh, not far from that scene, and I can't remember if it's directly adjacent or if there are intervening scenes, uh, the man who sent Block on the crusade in the first place mm. has become an, an entirely amoral nihilist, mm-hmm. you know, robbing corpses, raping women, uh, yes. you know, so the the war that was supposed to give meaning, even the person who instigated that has become a far more terrifying and reprehensible figure than Block, even though Block is the one with the self-awareness to confront the emptiness. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I, I find it interesting that this is paired immediate, immediately after the, the the knight realizes that death has tricked him. Um, mm. And this... Oh, he, he, wa- you know, he walks out into the light and... And he says, this is my hand. I can move it. I can feel the blood pulsing through it. The sun is still high in the sky, and I, Antonius Block, am playing chess with death. And you then cut to the to, to, to Jan's, the, the, the squire and the painter who are drunk as all get out and, <laughs> and making jokes you know, about the rump, the rump behind you, the rump behind you. Uh, 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 wherever you go, your rump is behind you. Um, <laughs> Which is exactly the kind of people that the knight is sort of lamenting over, you know, everybody living this futile life, and he doesn't want to. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. That I mean, it it is it is the heart of the film, even if it's not really the uh, you know the, the the center of it. Um, but this guy who's you know been, he he's he's back from ten years of fighting for God, and 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 all this you know is what he meets upon return. Mm-hmm. Um, and as David, as you mentioned, the the you know the vo- the void inside in which I look and see myself and 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 feel reproach. That immediately when you know that 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 thing brought to mind Augustine for me, you know, of course, right. which is um, you're supposed to find that void, uh, uh, you know, uh, and, and from that void seek God. Um, interesting pairing of all this this stuff together. Mm-hmm. Um, the the next question uh, uh, for for Nathan is not um, not on a scene as much as as character. So um, you have. Uh, jo- uh, is it Joff? I forget if it's pronounced Joff or Joff. I, I always call him Joff and Mia. Jo- Joff and <laughs> Mia, yeah, and and Michael, who they're, they're definitely a, a set of contrasting characters, um, particularly to the knight. So, how did they help tell the story? How does their presence uh, give some enrichment and and allow Bergman to to explore the spaces that he does? Well, first of all, I'll say that I mean, if, if this if if someone just compiled a a Real of close-ups, close-ups of Joff's face. That would be worth watching. Uh, I mean, <laughs> he he is just such a a joyful character to watch. Yeah. Um, and he stands a, as such a strong foil to block for a, a whole range of reasons. I mean, one of them is he's an actor. You know, the the as far as the church is concerned, the lowest of the low in medieval Europe. Uh, whereas Block is a knight. But on the other hand, whereas Block is confronted with this overwhelming emptiness and this silence of God, uh, Joff sees visions at least three different times in the movies. Mm-hmm. In the mm-hmm. movie, pardon me. And, you know, uh, so much so that, uh, you know, his wife Mia's response, and I, I love this response, is <laughs> <laughs> that there you go with your visions again. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, at the beginning of the film, you know, he sees a, a vision of the Holy Virgin teaching the Christ child to walk uh, towards the middle of the film. He, and, and it's, it's hard to say, it's hard to describe the scene, I'll put it that way, because mm. on screen he actually walks out and he sees Block playing chess with death, but it's also a vision of mortality playing chess with death. And it's also something that presumably Block is seeing as well, although he doesn't count it as a real sight of the mystical divine. Uh, but then at the end, you know, it is Joff who sees the dance of death on the hillside. Right. So it, he is a a wonderful foil to Block precisely because he sees and he receives those sights simply as a gift. Uh, it's not something that causes him reproach. Now, you know, Joff and Mia, as a pair of characters, are interesting because they are young and they are married, and as far as the bounds of the film, they are faithful to each other, which counts for something mm-hmm. uh, in this film. <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah. um, and most importantly, uh, although they can't afford any pants for him, they do have a child. <laughs> <laughs> a little boy, yeah. Potty training in the Middle Ages. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and so, you know, whereas this film, for most of its span, is is preoccupied with death, they are 
in a very straightforward sense, those who bear new life through the film and beyond the boundaries of the film. When mm-hmm. death carries off the rest of the major characters, uh, and in fact it might just be the rest of the characters, but uh, when death carries off the rest of the major characters, Joff and Mia continue to travel and to perform and to raise a child. So, again, you know, allegorically, uh, they are the comedic in the midst of all of the tragic. So, David, what else you got for Joff and Mia? Did you make any anything of the fact that their names are diminutives for Joseph and Mary? I should have, but I didn't. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, right. I had read that. I had thought it was odd that they were J mm. and M, but uh, so they are, huh? Yeah, and um, well, Michael. I mean, it would have been a little too on the nose to be like, "Hey, little, little <laughs> Josh, little Josh, hey, little little Jesus, <laughs> or whatever." I, I, don't, yeah. I don't know. Or the Swedish equivalent is, yeah. Yeah, that would have been a little bit too on the nose. But mm-hmm. still, those are their names, all right? Um, there's even, you know, and once you see that, you see you see Joff, warned of impending danger in a dream, takes, all, takes his family away. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, you wow, see the so fact- G- Gilmore misses the allegory entirely. <laughs> oh, no. Well, also, uh, you know, when you see... The the only vision of a of a living Christ in this film is of little naked baby Jesus being walked around with his mother, and mm-hmm. there's another little kid without pants in this film, as you know, <laughs> right? So I mean, I I don't know exactly what we're supposed to make of it, but it does seem as if there is a kind of still a kind of living image of of good and meaning meaningful human existence that's being embodied in this family that is a kind of holy family Mm -hmm. um they end up being uh, a kind of source of joy the only source of joy really for um antonius block in the film Mm -hmm. it's the, the they're the only people that he's ever with that he's ever that he senses that he feels any kind of sense of peace or beauty, or happiness, mm-hmm. uh, is is from this little family, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't know if they're supposed to be an allegory of the holy family, or if they're an alternate holy family where, mm-hmm. you know, we're supposed to, you know, sort of, you know, take our happiness where we can find it and not look for something beyond I, I i don't know what to make of it but it does seem as if they're they're very very important and the fact that they live is yeah. very very important mm-hmm. yeah well and that there's that scene with uh with the strawberries and the milk right which which is almost sacramental right i mean there's this oh, yeah. you know they they invite block over and 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 uh this is after the the play or, or what have you if i remember right and uh, they sit down, they rest, they have these strawberries they've picked and milk. And, yeah, I mean, there's a very simple – I mean, they are the light of the film, right? I mean, in, in, mm-hmm. in, a, in a number of ways. Um, so, you know, how intentional or unintentional this is, it certainly is an important role for there to be in this film. Um, 
and uh, yeah, I mean a perfect a perfect foil of uh, as 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 Nathan said. Um, well, I want to open it to you guys. Uh, other scenes, other uh, characters, or what have you. What what do you find compelling? Also, that we maybe haven't uh, addressed in this film. Nathan first, maybe. Sure, I'll hit lead. Or I don't care. Uh, no, that's good because that way, if David scoops me. Well, he won't, because I'll go first. <laughs> yeah, well, he won't. <laughs> the sorry. scene that I found both troubling and fascinating is when they finally do uh, burn the young woman uh, mm. for witchcraft, because, uh, and I'm going to try to get the character names right, uh, Jans says to Block, you know, look at her face. This is not a person who has spoken with the devil. This is a person who is looking into emptiness. And again, when I when I saw it the first time, you know, 20 years ago, my first thought was, okay, you know, what a heavy-handed bit of atheist propaganda. But 20 <laughs> years later, I realized that we, as the audience in that scene, are looking in on two more characters who also don't know what the heck's going on. And that mm-hmm. might be the point. Right. Uh, so Jan's, I mean, although he has a lot of bravado with his nihilism... Uh, he doesn't have any more grasp on what's going on than anyone else in this film. So, you know, it's it, it, it's one of those moments uh, where you've been warned over and over and over in the film that, you know, the people, whether it be the crusader theologians or whether it be the painters or whether it be anyone else who claim that they've got answers are probably full of beans. Uh mm. And this is the final test. I mean, can you face yawns and realize that he is just as freeholic as the rest of them? <laughs> <laughs> what do you got, Grubs, now that, now that I coined that awful term and I'm going to hear from Farmer yeah. about it? <laughs> I, love, uh, I, I love that scene, too. Um, gonna Well, more more needs to be said about it, and I, I think in answer to other questions, but... Hmm. Um, I think the, the 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 moment of agony on Max von Sydow's face, the the moment the moment of agony on the knight's face as the as the flames creep up on that poor girl mm-hmm. is that that was the moment in the film that got me most. Mm-hmm. Um. Because yeah, that, that that it's a it's that's just a fantastic moment. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite things and uh, is uh, I love Jans. Uh, he's got some fantastic little one-liners, mm-hmm. um, especially when he's making fun of people. The I, I think it's the blacksmith is doing goofy things. You know, ridiculous stuff is happening around him, and and, and the squire kind of uh, yawns, uh, laughs. Mm-hmm. Oh gosh, they, the running commentary is priceless. And, and <laughs> they, ask it, they ask him, "Well, uh, what, what's so funny?" Something like that, and he says, "In southern lands, there are things called apes." <laughs> <laughs> and there's just nothing, just no explanation. <laughs> you know, I, I was like, "Oh, that's." That's so 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 funny. Um, oh man! Yeah, 
I love I, I love that. So there there are there are moments of lightness, dear listeners. If you haven't seen this film and you're like, man, can I bear it? Can my heart bear it? <laughs> um, there are moments there are moments that are genuinely funny and genuinely touching in sweet ways too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just kind of wanted to give a shout out to that. Sure. Yeah. And, uh, can I can I shoot one more in there? Go right ahead. You Just bet. because it it is a line that has lingered with me mm-hmm. uh, for twenty years, and when I rewatched it here in preparation for this episode, I realized I still don't know what the heck to do with it. Mm-hmm. When at the very end, you know, Block says, you know, to death, you are full of mysteries, and Death's reply is, I don't have even a single mystery. Hmm. <laughs> I'm like, ah, I yeah. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> it's, it's the kind of thing that brings you back, though. I mean, yeah, yeah. You know? I, mean, I, I have no idea what to do with that line still, 20 yeah. years later. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's awesome. Um, David, uh, yeah, oh, do you got one more? Well, well, well oh, oh, you've you've already dibbed all yours because they're actually in the questions. Oh, yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> right, 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 right. I mean, yeah. I that, that's why I jumped in there. I wasn't afraid of scooping Todd. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't get turn. Um, can I? Can I? I, I took say, the easy ones. Slow hanging. Yeah, can, can I say a little bit uh, more about the 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 scene with uh, the scene with the flagellants? Of Go. course. Go ahead. Um, that one affected me interesting, mainly because I was angry. At the at what seemed to be a depiction of of medieval piety, when even even when the flagellants the the actual historical flagellants, it was about um, it was about a kind of atoning suffering, mm-hmm. right? Um, seeing the notion of suffering being atoning in the gospel itself, people embraced that and said, well, maybe we can also atone. If God mm-hmm. is if God is punishing us, perhaps we can, by our own suffering, atone for our neighbors. But the the zealot who is accompanying the flagellants in that scene, all he does is is just yell at people and just say, "You're doomed! You're doomed! You're doomed!" Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no call to repentance. Not really. Yeah. Um, it's it's just it's just anger. And it seems as if, you know, he thinks judgment's falling on the world and that's kind of making him happy in a way. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that, 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 that stuck out at me. But then when he walks off and the squire says, do they really expect modern people to take that drivel seriously? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, um, right. Yeah, yeah I, I, honestly, David, I, I kind of had that feeling too. I mean, that was a scene yeah. that seemed more fitting with the Siege of Munster than with the Black Death. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. In, in, anyway, all, 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 all that to say this, it's, it's an affecting scene, especially when all you're doing is watching the spectacle of the suffering. Mm. But when the voice of the zealot begins to speak to interpret the scene, yeah. mm-hmm. all I yeah. could think was is how insufficient this voice is. Mm. Even, yeah. e- even to describe what you're seeing just in this scene, much less an explanation for the world. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Wow, no, oh, good. Well, I uh, I do have one more one more question for you uh, for uh, for David. Um, after making the seventh seal, Ingmar Bergman was was asked about death, um, and he said this. Uh, he said, "I was afraid of, of this enormous emptiness, 
But my personal view is that when we die, we die, and we go from a state of something to a state of absolute nothingness. And I don't believe for a second that there's anything above or beyond or anything like that. And this makes me enormously secure. All right, so put on your best Antonius block and uh, <laughs> and respond. She ended up with Oh, no. <laughs> 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 um, uh, put on that amazing helmet that he wears, that, that big, like, pot-looking thing. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um... I don't think Antonius would be super impressed with it. Not really. Mm. Because it doesn't address what seems to be at the back of his objections or uh, his his reasons for finding the silence of God so offensive. Um, he doesn't find nothing. The idea that nothing would be there after death. He, uh, Bergman's use the word it make this makes me enormously secure <laughs> is precisely the thing that 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 the knight would take issue with the the notion of emptiness after life the notion that there would be nothing that there would be no mystery that it would just be death um means that life is uh as he says it mean it would make life a senseless terror and it's the it's not the terror, it's the senselessness. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see it in in the scene when the the girl's being burned for having, you know, having relations with the devil himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, the squire asks, um, "Who will take care of that child? Is it the angels or God or Satan or the emptiness, mm-hmm. the emptiness, sire?" And the knight says, "It can't be so. Mm-hmm. It's not." just that he's afraid of death it's that the terror of life itself becomes senseless without a god and moreover without a god of justice and without a god who would look who would look after the weak and look after those who are sinned against um it's the kind of uh i think it's the kind of moral intuition that led, uh, if I remember correctly, people like John Locke to say it, it makes sense that there would be um, future rewards and future punishments because otherwise it means that the injustices of life when the good suffer and the evil triumph make no sense. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's that same kind of intuition going on. And so I, I don't think Antonius Block would be enormously secure at the idea that nothing waited because the, mm. because it doesn't just because it he's not scared of death he's scared of life yeah. and he's scared of life being senseless he's scared of the terror being senseless mm. not of the terror being there but of being of it being senseless yeah mm. yeah nathan nathan yeah i mean about the only thing that i would add to that is that Enormous, enormously secure seems to be precisely the opposite of what this film is going for. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, enormous to be sure in that old sense of monstrous, uh, but security just isn't something that this film offers. I mean, except perhaps for the persistence of Joff and Mia, but for those who, for those for whom death comes... I, I just don't see how you arrive at security. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, and it, it, it's it's an interesting comment. Um, <laughs> well, it, it's just interesting for me to to juxtapose that that statement with the film itself and the territory it explores, and mm. um, uh, you know, so wow. Well, um, I uh, like to, I guess, bring this to a close. We're on about right amount of time i suppose um just a simple question go around the horn nathan you first um why should christians see this film christians should see this film precisely because it does leave that glorious gaping void into which one could speak a word if one lived in that universe Mm. and one of the things that a film like this really kind of highlights in a way that our consumer numbness sometimes blurs is that life in a universe without meaning is precisely the terror that that haunts us most severely uh you know like david said and i'm I'm obviously piggybacking off of what he said in the last question Mm -hmm. uh, most people if we have a reason to die we can face our own demise most people if we have some sense of how life fits into a framework that extends beyond life, we can keep on living and even keep on attempting to live a good life. It is the stark and utter meaningless of this film that, that in my mind, culminates with the I have no mysteries mm-hmm. that should haunt you when you watch this film. And you should realize that you know a film like this is an honest portrayal, I would say I'm, I'm almost a Nietzschean portrayal of that haunting that slowly but surely should grip the world. Hmm. What do you yeah. got, David? The Christian elements, and there are Christian elements in it, I mean, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, we have a holy family, even if we're not sure what to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a sacrament of communion, mm-hmm. right? in which... Uh, the the knight holds up the bowl and declares it a sign of the of an event yeah. that he will carry with him, mm-hmm. and then the bowls the bowl of milk and the bo- and the strawberries are passed among each of the members of this little community. They're, they're constituting these people who just sort of accidentally found themselves mm. um, as community. What do I make of it? I don't know. I don't know, but it's 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 in there. It's 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 a little moment that seems to suggest that maybe Bergman wants more than he offers. Mm. Um, but the thing that I would want to focus on is that last bit when death shows up. The reaction of each of the characters, um, the humorous blacksmith who we've seen almost nothing about. Um, the servant girl who's saved from rape by the squire, who is heroic in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, the squire himself, the knight, the knight's wife, um, the blacksmith's wife. When death stands there, each of them reacts in a different way. Um, the knight is overwhelmed by the mystery and praise. The squire keeps saying, there's nothing afterwards. There's nothing, there's no God, there's nothing. There's just we're just going to die and it's going to be nothing. Mm. But what the Smith does is I think show a kind of healthy 
and maybe naive but healthy Christian reaction in the face of death, which is he begins to recite his own life. Hmm. This is who I am. This is what I've done. I think I've been a good blacksmith. This is my wife, and we've tried to live well together on the whole, you know. And that the, the simplicity of the smith in the face of death is, I, I hope, closer to what I am than the knight and certainly than the squire. Hmm. Good stuff. Well, um, I guess the only, you know, the as I thought about, you know, why I recommend this film, um, it is perhaps perhaps an a, a amalgam of of the things that you two have said, um, the 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 bleakness of reality, in 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 the face of the expectation that maybe there is no God, maybe there is no purpose, um, is a is a is a useful thing for people to to wrestle with. Um, it just as I would point people to Ecclesiastes to think about these things. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think the, the, the fact that this is a film made by um, uh, one whose, uh, whose beliefs don't line up with ours, um, but yet can place things on the screen that, that we can uh, we can appreciate and understand and even sympathize with, um, I think makes for a more powerful experience for a Christian than many ostensibly Christian films do. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I think the power is in that, um, that this is, you know, one, one man's uh, vision of uh, the way the world is, and, uh, and, and it's useful for us to reflect on that. Um, I, I also, you know, one, one, one further character that I was actually going to bring up earlier, uh, I guess, is the character of death, because mm. it, is, it is interesting to watch him, and what, you know, what is he doing all along, um, and I can't help but think of um, screw tape letters, and, mm. uh, you know, the, 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 the demons inspired by, uh, by screw tape. You know, um, because so many, so many times he's he's being subtly defense, uh, subtly deceptive um, mm. in the way he speaks uh, directly directly to Block. Um, I just I, I love that portrayal, and and that that hit me this this last watching of this film. So, um, well, thank you for your for for your contributions today. This has been a fun conversation, um, David. I think you're next up. Uh, what's coming up? Well, um, like death, what lies behind the veil of the next episode will be a mystery. <laughs> but he has no mysteries. <laughs> well, this time he does. <laughs> <laughs> excellent, excellent. So we're doing an episode on Twister? 
<laughs> uh, potentially. Potentially. Battleship, but that's, uh, <laughs> that's that's my feeling anyway. Listeners will have to wait and see. Wait and see. Well, dear listeners, we hope you've enjoyed our little tour through through Bergman's uh, masterpiece, and, and we'd all encourage you when the mood strikes to grab a copy of the film and take it for a ride. Mm-hmm. If you've uh, enjoyed this program and the Christian Humanist Podcast in general, then please do make sure and give us good ratings at iTunes, uh, likes on Facebook, and be sure to visit us at the Christian Humanist blog, which represents this and all the productions of the Christian Humanist Radio Network, which include this podcast, the Christian Feminist Podcast, the Book of Nature, Sectarian Review, and the Pietist Schoolman. Uh, the press liaison for the network is Kristen Philippic, and the sound engineer and intern for this particular podcast is Amberly Evans. Again, we thank you for joining us this week, and as always, we remind you of the words of Martin Luther, let your sins be strong, but let your faith be stronger.